Welcome to the Denver United Message Series, Awakening. At the beginning of each year, we set aside time for a season of prayer and fasting, dedicating this time to seeking Christ, practicing spiritual disciplines, and growing deeper in the Word. In a few moments, we'll share more information about how you can participate in Awakening. But for now, let's listen in to today's message. Right. It's time to jump into the Word. We're continuing in our series this morning. It is awakening time. We begin each year here at Denver United focusing on our own personal relationship with Jesus, laying that foundation. And the Word of God makes clear that drawing near to Jesus, He will draw near to us, but He doesn't thrust Himself on us. And so we make that choice. We make it anew as living sacrifices every day and every year. Great way to order our lives and our priorities at the start of the year. Our series focuses Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. If we're going to draw near to God, it behooves us to draw near to the God who is there and differentiate Him from the God of our comfort, the God of our experience, the God of our culture, or otherwise. And so as we continue in that subject this morning, we turn our focused attention to the third member of the triune Godhead. And in thinking about the subtle and critical role of the Holy Spirit this week, I was reminded of walking through the legal process with uh, a church member over the last year, (coughs) pardon me, here in Denver. And uh, it wasn't a crime which of which he was accused, but rather of which he was a victim and went through a traumatic experience to add insult to injury. He had to go to court over that or has to, it's ongoing. And in so doing, the court here in Denver assigned him a victim's advocate. It wasn't a nonprofit association or organization that came alongside. This was the justice system. I was really impressed by this fact. And so the job of the victim's advocate in its entirety is to help the victim who didn't ask to be in court, didn't choose an arraignment, didn't want to be doing this at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning, didn't ask to be victimized as he was, but lest justice be underserved, needed to be there. And so the victim's advocate exists to bring him up to speed. It's like a little bit of a, of a, a hasty field education in the criminal justice system. Here's what this is. Here's how this is going to go. Here's what you can do. And here's what your rights are. Here's how you can help justice to be served more fully if you choose. Here's how you can advocate for yourself. Here's how you can take advantage of the ways that the criminal justice system will advocate for you. And each time that we wanted to sort of snap into defense mode, I was just there supporting him, realizing that's what the, the, um, the victim's advocate was there for too. We kept being refreshed and pleasantly surprised that her entire role was to support him, to encourage him, to strengthen him in going through this process, to advocate for him, to remind him of how it works, lest he be expected to remember it all, and in short, to be an advocate for him in that difficult process. 
It's very similar to what Jesus describes as the role of the Holy Spirit as we go through this difficult process of living the kingdom of God here on earth. In John chapter 14, Jesus, in his last week where we've begun each of this month's teachings, Jesus speaking more plainly now as the cross and his return to the Father is imminent, knowing as he did that his disciples were going to have to stand up on their own two feet soon, he starts speaking very clear and plain. He tells them he's going to go away and they get really upset by that, understandably so. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm not going to invite you into this journey with me only to leave you on your own when you don't know what to do. I'm not going to bait and switch you. Trust me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. And if this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything's ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. So he says, trust me for the future. I'm not taking off and leaving you here to find your way. I am the way. But then he turns his attention, not just to the hereafter, but to the here and now. And he says a few verses later, I will ask the Father, meantime, with regard to your plight here on earth, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate. Capital A, clue, that this is not just a teacher, a rabbi, a leader, but an advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit, who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and it doesn't recognize him. But you know him. He's already been with you. You've seen his handiwork. You've experienced his influence in your lives and in the world where we have gone and done the work of God. He's been with you. And later... He will be in you. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I told you. He's going to keep the work going that I have begun. If you're thinking, hey, Jesus, I'm just starting to figure out who you are and what on earth you were talking about with all those parables, the Holy Spirit's going to continue the process. And he's going to remind you of everything I've taught. What we've seen so far is that to know the Father requires knowing the Son. The Son reveals the Father. He is an exact representation of the Father's being. And likewise, to know the Son, we must know the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus the way Jesus reveals the Father. The Holy Spirit continues the work which Jesus began and is with us all the time. Jesus makes clear as we're purposing to draw near to God this awakening season, you can't know God without knowing the Holy Spirit. And this is a tragedy for many of us in the church because we have made a religious practice of knowing God without knowing the Holy Spirit. Nobody denies or distances from God who comes to church. We want to know God. That's the premise of our approach. And then in the 
Last 50 years, the evangelical reformation in America has said, look, to know God, you must know Jesus. And so having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, walking with Jesus has become normal, par for the Christian course. But man, how easy is it to know God, know Jesus, and kind of go, don't ask, don't tell about the Holy Spirit, you know, like the Clinton administration's policy? Why is that? We've looked at the Holy Spirit variously as a sort of aura of God's goodness or the fragrance of God, as a a force to be added to our Christianity so that we can level up, as a sort of power pellet in the charismatic tradition. We just get the Holy Ghost and then we go out and do the works of God. While none of those things is exactly wrong, they're so woefully incomplete as to leave us knowing the Father and the Son and ignorant of the role, the presence, and yes, the person of the Holy Spirit. Some of us in parts of the evangelical tradition have never said it, but experienced and tacitly bought into this notion that the Holy Spirit and the culture that's emerged around him in the church, it's a little bit lowbrow, right? It's a little bit lowbrow. Like to do that is we're gonna, next thing you know, we're gonna be like swinging from the chandeliers or doing the conga line through church and then our, our neighbors will think we're ridiculous. The Holy Spirit, Jesus makes clear, is a person the third person of the eternally coexistent triune Godhead. We cannot know God without knowing God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. And evangelist John Bevere observed, and I think he's so right, the Holy Spirit is the most ignored person in the church. And friends, this is a tragedy. Not just a tragedy for our ignoring one-third of God revealed, but it's a tragedy for ourselves, for what we leave on the table. Draw near to me, God invites, and I will draw near to you. In chapter 16, Jesus continues in his interaction during the last week with his disciples. He says, in fact, it's best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, though, I will send him to you. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He will guide you, listen, into all truth. How badly does our culture, does our nation and Western civilization need to be guided into truth in a post-truth era? He won't speak on his own, but will tell you what he's heard. He'll tell you about the future. He'll tell you about what I have done in you. He'll bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. Now, this is one of those passages that we can read past and if we're not careful, suffer from the sort of familiarity syndrome that causes us to miss the weight, the gravity of bombshell statements Jesus makes. Imagine you've been walking with God in the flesh, having finally figured out and just recently confessed, you are in fact God. Having seen the miracles, the likes of what the disciples witnessed, and then have Jesus tell you, I'm going away, but look, don't be sad because it's actually better for you that I go away. 
If I'm a disciple, I'm sorry, I'm probably lacking perspective, but I'm like, no, 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 no. Maybe it's better for you, and I get that because you're God trapped in a human body. People don't recognize you. You get rejected wherever you go. You have to like sleep, eat, use the restroom. That's got to be very limiting. Empathy-wise, I get it. But you're kind of, I'm wondering, are you giving me the mind job? Like the, you know, the Jedi mind trick? These are not the droids you're looking for. Kind of like Jesus, are you doing that? It's better for you that I go away. It's better for me. No, it's not better for me. It is most definitely not better for me not to have God in the flesh sleeping next to me in the tent. That is the definition of what is not better for me. So I would think. Anyone else with me? Okay, what is Jesus saying? How could it possibly be better than having God to travel with down the road? It's as if Jesus is saying, to have me is to have one human. You're with me until you're not. Remember how it felt, Bartholomew, Philip, James the Lesser? Like, how much does it suck to be known as James the Lesser for 2,000 years? Remember, guys, when I took Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain of transfiguration, and you heard a later, like, wow, Jesus was all glowing, and we're like, this emoji? Awesome, Peter. You got to see Jesus glow. Sweet, James. You got to see the ghosts of Moses and Elijah. Two thumbs up for you, big guy. I'm James the Lesser, though. Now imagine going through Christian history for the next 50 years and people are like, oh, dang, you're James? What did Moses look like? Oh, no, no, I'm James the Lesser. It was James the Greater who got to see Elijah. Right? So Jesus is one dude when he's on the earth. He's like, good for you if you're with me. But even Peter's like, yeah, I got to go see the ghosts of Moses and Elijah. But it was John's bosom against which Jesus was evidently leaning, not mine. And Peter was all like, you want to lean on my bosom? He's like, no, I'm good with John. Peter reads John writing, the disciple whom Jesus the man loved, and he's like, sweet. So he says, I'm one guy. But God is not confined to one corporeal existence. God is everywhere. He is transcendent. But that makes him dwell in unapproachable light. Jesus revealed him. But God didn't stop there. Jesus said, the best version of seeking me and finding me, of drawing near to me and my drawing near to you, is you all get to go to the mountaintop. You all get to hang with the ghosts of Moses and Elijah. You all get to see me glowing because I've been with you, but now I'm going to be in you. You all get to be James the Greater. It's better for you. Jesus is creating for us, it seems, a full-time and real-time connection to God. Years ago, I traveled to the island city country of Singapore. Fascinating place. Anyone been to Singapore? Super um, modern civilization, very prosperous, very peaceful. They cane you if you do things against the law, so people don't do things that are against the law very much. And... Um, 
In Singapore, they had a vision. Now, this was but 15 plus years ago. It's probably fully come to pass. Some of you who have been there more recently can verify. They had a vision for this newfangled internet thing to be everywhere, like in the whole country. You're always connected. You don't even need LTE because there's a bubble of Wi-Fi. And so you're full-time connected to one another in the world. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. It's better for you because every one of you gets the full-time connection. In 2 Corinthians 13, we begin with this verse. The apostle Paul closes his letter by saying, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and what? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? I get the fellowship of Jesus. Like they walk down the road, they crack jokes, they got caught arguing about who was the greatest, Jesus busted their chops, but then he showed mercy on them. Fellowship with Jesus, I get. What is the fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Because that's what's better than having Jesus in the flesh. What does that look like? I don't know about you, but I grew up in Sunday school singing songs and reciting verses to the effect that Jesus lives in my heart. I don't mean to mock Sunday school. I mean, it's true in, in a euphemistic way. Anyone else take comfort in the fact that Jesus lives right here? So in point of theological fact, that's not true. Jesus currently is seated at the right hand of the Father, will return, at which time he may or may not visit right here, but that's not where he is. However, Jesus is the second of three persons of the eternally coexistent triune Godhead. And so as such, esoterically, Jesus does want to live here. But it's the Holy Spirit who does that work. Now, can you interchange Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Sure. Have you ever listened to Pastor Neil pray? He prays to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in like one sentence. It's amazing. It's a tour de force of Trinitarian theology. And Father God, I just thank you, Jesus, that you're with me, Holy Spirit. That's awesome. I always leave more of a Christian after praying with Neil. You can totally interchange those. I'm not trying to sharpshoot your Sunday school teacher. But the point is the extent to which he is living here is if the Holy Spirit is living here. Because Jesus himself isn't living here. He's sitting up there at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians chapter 5 says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't carry on, Christians, in Ephesus, new followers of Jesus, living the way that you lived in the world, your fruitless life before Christ. It's going to ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs among yourselves, living the life of full-time connection making music to the Lord in your hearts. You ever talk to someone, they're so full of Jesus that when they're out of church, it's like they've got music playing in their hearts. The life of God just flows out of them. You're like, man, I want to be with that guy. I don't want to be like her. Give thanks for everything in all circumstances to God through Jesus Christ. How in every circumstance do we give thanks to God through Jesus Christ? By being filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we live in all of the intervening common moments of the week, the full life in Christ? 
by being filled with the Holy Spirit. What's fascinating here is he's writing to believers. The whole context of the letter makes that clear. Young believers, perhaps, frontier believers to be sure, but believers nonetheless. And he says, believers, you have a choice in the matter. I'm gonna try and persuade you to do it this way. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wait a second. Aren't we all filled with the Holy Spirit? Don't we all get the Holy Spirit? We'll come back to that in just a moment. But he seems to make clear that there is a choice we have, and he implores them to draw near to God and live the full life in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we've seen in this awakening study series, we have a God who is for us. And that's personified by the Father, not holding our sins against us, not standing up there like an angry taskmaster, but full of compassion and mercy. God is love. We have a God who is for us, but he didn't stop there. We have a God who is with us, and that's Christ the Son. He left heaven. This is what we talked about during the Advent season. The incarnation came and dwelled among us. God is for us, so the Father makes clear. God is with us as we see irrefutably in the sun. And now what we discover is that God is in us. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, implying that this is not automatic, that God gives us the choice in the matter. It's clear that God wants to live in us but it's also clear he's not going to force his way in. God wants to live in us, but he's not going to lower the shoulder and go all Chuck Norris through the door of our hearts. Back to the question that this begs. Didn't we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation? That's what I was always taught. Were you? You come to God through Jesus Christ, and then you receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. Is that untrue? No, it's true. Ephesians chapter 1 makes it clear. Paul tells you what you experienced. When you believed in verse 13, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So you got a deposit and you were marked with a seal. That's true. It's just that what Paul's talking about when he says be filled with the Holy Spirit is, as it turns out, a second thing that God the Holy Spirit does. You're like, how can he do two things? He does many things, right? I mean, Jesus both restores our brokenness and redeems our future. He both saves us from our sins and shows us the way to live. God does innumerable things. It's just a different function of God, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we get caught up on that. I already got the Holy Spirit. Really what that often is, as I've observed and at times experienced, if I'm honest, myself and my younger Christian life, is a, an excuse not to do that Holy Spirit stuff. I already got it. Fine. If that's where you want to leave it. The Holy Spirit seals us for sure. Gives us a deposit, undoubtedly. Guaranteeing what is to come. A deposit implies that there is a balance that's going to be paid out in installments, in a lump sum, however that works. So he is, at first, a foretaste and an invitation. This is consistent with the personality of God, right? If you think about it, 
God desires for his people to come to him, but he offers a covenant. He doesn't force them. He created us with the will to choose him. That's the whole premise of the covenant. He didn't make us robots or automatons, puppets on strings that come to him when he makes us. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open it, I'll come in and dine with you. If you don't, I won't. That's the implication. And so the Holy Spirit's interaction with us is consistent with the personality of God, no? Are you following me? Just like God saves us by grace through faith, it's not a work, he makes clear, but it is an action. It is volition on our part. We're not saved by faith alone. Everybody would be saved. It's by grace alone, rather, or everybody would be saved. And there's a, there's a fringe or heretical doctrine of universalism that makes it that way. We're saved by grace through the act of volition that is our faith. Similarly, we draw near to God by God's making himself available and then our inviting him in to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 11, this brings us to Jesus. So I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks Finds, etc. So Jesus concludes in this paragraph if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, which most of us parents do, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Many of us have quoted. Jesus, ask and you will receive about many things. And I think that's not an irresponsible application of that verse. What though in specific is Jesus talking about? When he says, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open to you. What or more precisely, whom is he referring to? Anyone know? He says, if you parents know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What an amazing statement. So first I invite him in and then what? What does that fellowship look like? What next? Jude says, you beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. We build ourselves up in our faith, responding to God's invitation of perpetual full-time connection, praying in the Holy Spirit. We cultivate fellowship with the Holy Spirit. It's something we get to choose. It's something ongoingly. Keep on asking, Jesus says. Keep on seeking. It's something ongoingly that we cultivate, and we cultivate it foremost by praying in the Holy Spirit, learning to pray in the Holy Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 14, here we go. The verses that never get read in church unless it's that church. That's what the fully honest study Bible would say. These are the verses that, get, that we pretend don't exist in the Bible unless it's that church. 
Well, I don't know if we're that church, but we're a church that believes that intellectual honesty is worship. And if we don't take the word of God as God's authoritative truth, and we pick and choose what we like, we might as well chuck the whole thing and go golfing on Sunday morning. We're a church that fears God. More than I fear you reading weird verses. So here we go. Put on your weird verse seatbelt. You ready? Anyone need to get up and walk out? You're free to go. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 14. If I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying. Well, then what shall I do? I will pray in the spirit, but I'll also pray in words I understand. I will sing in the spirit, and I will also sing in words I understand. For if you praise God only in the spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? Dear brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your understanding of these things. Be innocent as babies when it comes to evil, but mature in understanding matters of this kind. It's written in the scriptures, I will speak to my own people through strange languages. Part of how I'm gonna draw near to them, part of how they're going to hear my voice and experience me. This is weird, man. I'm reading your weird vibes. It's true. I'm not gonna try and tell you it didn't just want to contextualize it for a second. If you're hearing that and going, oh, he said the T word in church. It's true. It's a little weird. So say the people who have purposed themselves this month to drawing near to a God who dwells in unapproachable light, lives outside of time and says, no one can see me and live. So say a people who respond to the invitation of a man who lived 2,000 years ago, died brutally, apparently rose from the dead, and then floated up into the clouds, that we can experience his presence by eating a small shelf-stable wafer, drinking a cup of preserved juice, and telling ourselves we're consuming the body and the blood of the dude that lived 2,000 years ago. What's my point? You're already weird. I'm just speaking honestly. Weirdness is culturally subjective. You're already weird. If your concern is what they're gonna think, I don't know that there is a place for you in Christ. It is the supernatural after all. What we're saying is it's weird. What I think we're meaning is it's unfamiliar. Would you expect God to be anything else? If he fit in your box, would you need him? Would you want him? As soon as you solve that little wooden crazy puzzle that your great aunt gives you at Christmas, you never touch it again. I'm saying it's not that it's not weird. I'm saying that you're already far down the weird road. Why get off before the intimacy? Why get off before the power? Why get off before the full-time presence of God? If you're already on the weird train, why get off at the stop before Jesus said is the better thing than having him in the flesh? That makes no sense to me. 
I can respect intellectual honesty that says all of this is just too much. I'm out of here, man. I disagree, but I can respect that. Taking the parts that fit in to what we grew up with and leaving the rest aside, that I can't respect. It just doesn't make sense. Romans 8 says, here's what Paul describes behind the scenes is happening when you're praying in the Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that words cannot express. Have you ever gotten frustrated trying to pray because it feels like work because you're trying to like explain it to God? You're trying to make the problem make sense when the whole reason you're praying in the first place is that you don't know how to solve the problem, but you're laboring, trying to pull the puzzle apart and make it make sense to God when in fact, God isn't asking you to explain it. God thought of quantum physics. The universe fits in his hand. He's looking for faith. And so praying in the Holy Spirit is groanings that words can't express. But listen, what is it? Is it just groaning to groan? Like people do with the wailing wall, there's value in that, but that's not it alone. The Father knows all hearts and he knows what the Holy Spirit is saying. And the Spirit intercedes for the believers according to God's perfect will. When I don't know what to pray, when I don't know where the job is or who the spouse is that I'm longing for or how to make my heart whole and function with people again or how to restore that relationship that has been broken and left for dead, when I don't know, I go to God and say, help. And the Spirit meets me there and installs the Jesus software afresh. And the Holy Spirit translates, intercedes for me to God takes my faith, unintelligible, dull, and childlike though it may be, and turns it into a prayer that aligns with the perfect will of God. So praying in the Spirit is surrender. It's submitting and saying, God, I don't know, but I know you know, and I want you to come and fill me anew. Some of you are like, yeah, I tried that once. (laughs) I, I came forward. I even did it at a conference. The guy was wearing expensive shoes. That makes it, it's supposed to work then. Nothing happened. That's very possible. I don't doubt that. How many of you are married? I don't know one of you, and I don't know all of you, but I don't know one of you that only tried once. I asked Mari out like 35 times. Right? The point is we're human beings. We know how to go after what we really want. If you want it bad enough, you don't stop at once. I don't stop at once. I don't let go, I lay hold of it with the Kung Fu grip. There's like eight cliches to refer to prying my cold dead fingers off of things that I really want on purpose. Those cliches exist because that's so very human of us. So I tried it once and it didn't work. All that does is bespeak how much or little I really wanted it. Here's what I know. Jesus is true and trustworthy and loves you with an everlasting love. And if he says, ask and it'll be given to you, I think you can trust him in that. 
He says, which of you parents bait and switches your kids? Hey, you want, you want uh, waffles for breakfast? Yeah, psych, you have to have kale. You parents, you know how to come through for your kids. How much more will your heavenly father come through for you? How much more will he give you the Holy Spirit when you ask? How does it work? I don't know. I think one of the ways we've profaned this process is over-explaining. Trying to make it, make God into a formula. Just give utterance, brother, was what they kept saying to me. I'm like, what does that even mean? Just say these syllables. I don't think God needs my help. Jesus Christ died on a cross. I think he's more than capable of installing the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, what's it going to look like? I don't know. I mean, if you want, I'll have coffee with you and tell you how it looked for me. I just kept on asking. It's like, this is weird and unfamiliar and probably causing every Presbyterian elder under whose spiritual authority I grew up to groan, not in the spirit. However, it's there in the word of God. I want it. I want you. I prayed it at the service. I don't know if anything happened, but it didn't feel like it. I went to the back room afterward where people did very questionable things to my sensibilities. Nothing really happened. I went home and kept on asking. Nothing really happened, but you know what? Actually, something did, because guess what I did? I kept on asking. That's a little bit of something, isn't it? kept on asking. The Holy Spirit was like coming up beneath the surface like a seed and finally broke through the surface and I saw what was germinating. And one day I started praying as I understood it to be in the Spirit without trying to make it happen. It's not a performance thing. It's not a rank. It's not an upgrade option. He is God. And He says, as we've said each week this month, draw near to me. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Would you stand with me? All right, anybody's Presbyterian grandparents rolling over in their graves? Just tell them they're weird too. Their culture just normalized their weirdness. Father, we, um, we love Jesus. That's the beginning and end of it. We see in Jesus everything we want everyone we want to be, everything that we aren't and lack and love. We see in the evidences of Jesus' work in our friends, your kindness, your goodness. We want Jesus. I confess it's still hard. I've been doing this 22 years. God, it's still hard for me to tell people that it's better for them than having Jesus in person, but I trust you. So the word of God says, ask. We're gonna just play some music and create a little space and I simply invite you. Would you ask? You're like, yeah, I've already been filled with the spirit. Great. You can be filled with the spirit, filled with the spirit, filled with the spirit again. You know why? Because we leak, don't we? I'm great until I'm not. So ask him to fill you anew. Ask him to fill you for the first time. Ask him to fill you afresh. Invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill you. Don't go back to the ways of the world, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you ask?
Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information on how you can participate in Awakening, go to our website, denverunited.com, where you can learn more about prayer and fasting. You can get details of our upcoming worship nights and dive deeper into this wonderful time, growing closer to Christ and His church.
We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com.